Good morning. Can you hear me? Sounds like you're going to hear me twice. Good morning. My name's Barry. I'm uh, one of the pastoral team here. It's good to be here. Good to welcome you here, especially if you're visiting. Um, add my welcome to um, John's. Um, we're doing a short series on John 6. And we'll come to that in a moment. I just want to pray before we start um, that God will speak to us and leave us with something lasting from this morning. So just bow your heads and settle your minds. Put aside um, the thoughts of the day, of the week. Father, send your spirit. As we sample your word, just this short, rather strange story, may we encounter you in a special way. Amen. I just want to read you before I start a, a short extract. Um, it's about an encounter between a man called John Kavanagh, who I've never heard of, um, who was an ethicist. That's someone who writes about ethics. That's ethics, not Basildon or Billericay, which is Essex. Um, but he, he visited um, Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and this is how the story went. The brilliant ethicist John Kavanagh went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta. He was seeking a clear answer as to how best to spend the rest of his life. On the first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. She asked, and what can I do for you? And Kavanagh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. And he replied, pray that I have clarity. And she said firmly, no, I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanagh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he longed for, she laughed and said, I never have had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Let me ask you a question. If, I, if you were to be really honest with me, and I know in this small, intimate group that will be very easy, um, how many of you, deep down, you strip all the surface stuff away, have a narrative of fear inside? Anyone willing to put their hand up and say, I spend a lot of time afraid? How many of you are too afraid to put your hand up? <laughs> there were quite a lot of hands, actually. Are you afraid? Is it there in your life, um, a sort of underlying voice that dictates almost everything you do? Except you don't necessarily think about that because it makes you even more afraid. I would... Um, admit to it myself some of the things I admire most in other people is not their talent or their gifting but their courage their ability to put the fear and narrative to one side and trust in God Gerald am I echoing terribly um, is there something you can do about that okay um, I recently 
experienced this in my own life. I was honest enough to face it. I, I thought I was facing what felt like a, a perfect storm. I was concerned over what I was doing, over what my wife was doing. And three, I call them children, they're not really, the, the, the eldest is 22, three descendants of mine um, who were all undergoing critical exams in the same three-week period, all of which would have a major impact on their future. Now, it's not the same as um, being bombed in Syria or starving to death in Ethiopia. But for me, it was a confluence of things that was all fairly pressurized. And it highlighted for me that one of the strongest narratives in my subconscious is fear, actually being afraid. Um, When I came in this morning, there was a a couple here and they had a baby. Not quite a baby, but a very small child. And he was grinning from ear to ear. And every new face that looked into the pram, he grinned even more. And then he picked it up and and lifted him up and he he, he saw everything around him. And he grinned even more. And it struck me, you know, we are born with the gift of trust. That's what we're imbued with. What we learn is fear. Life teaches us to be afraid. We we are afraid of consequence. And that narrative plays out in our minds to a greater or lesser extent a great deal of the time. And an awful lot of what you do, you do because you're afraid of the future. Of course, sometimes it's good. There is a sort of fearlessness that is foolhardy and will lead you to distress and, and problems. But when it gets a grip, when it's the dictating voice in your life, it's a prison and it it stops you being the person you want to be. This story, Jesus walking on the water, baffling, I think, it sits there in between two other stories about bread. So this this chapter 6 is literally a sandwich, isn't it? You've got two slices of bread and then this little bit of meat in the middle. You've got Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then this great discourse of his saying, I am the bread of life. And in the middle is this strange story of him walking on the water. And ever since I was a child, I thought, what a show-off. What is the point of doing that? That's the way I think. I don't like sort of, you know, demonstrative, um, just doing things for the sake of it. So I always wrestled with this passage and wondered what it was all about. It's in three of the Gospels. It's not in all four. And you're probably, if, if you've read it before, you're thinking, oh, where's the bit about Peter? You know, there's, a bit, there's another version, isn't there, which is in Matthew's Gospel, about Peter getting out of the boat and walking as well. It's omitted from this version of the story in John. There's a little clue there. This story for John and John's theological purpose in writing this gospel is about Jesus. He doesn't want anyone else getting in the way. Even though he would have known that Peter did that. He was in the boat himself. So I'm I'm just running about Jesus. This is about him. I want to show people who he is. And someone else can write about Peter. And we all had a good laugh at him anyway. So maybe it's kinder not to put it in. This is about Jesus. I read this on, in some sort of commentary. I can't remember where I, where I got it from. Um, I'm just going to quote it for you. When Jesus gets in the boat, the storm ceases. When we have Jesus in our boat, the storms of life will be calmed and we can worship him. 
Do you believe that? No, I, know, I know the Sunday school answer is yes. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think the storms of life disappear at all. It's not been my experience and not of any honest person I've ever talked to. It's a bit like mis-selling payment protection insurance. All right? I'm going to try and make this topical if it kills me. Um, the lives of the disciples were utterly transformed by their decision to follow Jesus, but they did not experience storm-free life. What they did experience was a life of adventure, participating in the purposes of God, a source of strength and supernatural power that enabled them to follow that life and not just cope with it but live victoriously in it, but not an end to the storms of life. God's plan for your life is not so much to make it safe and easy, but to draw you into his adventure and fill you with his spirit so the fear goes away by drawing you into his purposes, his plan for the world through you and to equip you to enjoy that adventure and deliver you from this natural human state which we call fear, being afraid of the future. And isn't that mostly what we're afraid of? When it's already happened, you're dealing with it, aren't you? When it's yet to happen, and may never happen, you're afraid. And it's the fear, not the crisis, that paralyzes you. Fear is a form of paralysis. Let's look at the story. My first point to you is beware of what happens when we try and hire God. What do I mean by that? If you go one verse before the passage that we read, verse 15, it says this. Jesus, this is after he's fed the 5,000, so there's a lot of interest in him. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Coming to Jesus, accepting the invitation to God, is not inviting you to ask him to fulfill your purposes. We are invited to cooperate with God, not to co-opt God into our lives. And yet that is what we do most of the time. We invite God to bless what we are doing and are always intended to do and have no intention of not doing. And we pursue those plans regardless of what we sense he may want for us and ask his blessing on us. Don't feel bad about that. I say we because I am chief of all sinners, as Paul would say. Certainly true of large sections of my life. The reason that the disciples are alone in this boat is that Jesus has withdrawn. He's gone up into the mountainside to be alone because there was so much pressure for people to make him be what they wanted him to be. And he knew that that couldn't happen. He knew that that was not what he was there to, to do. If you look in Luke 24, which is the story of those two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, this was true even of the disciples. 
They, they say there that, you know, that our, our, our leader has just been killed. We had hoped he was the promised one to become king of Israel. Even the disciples thought Jesus was something other than he was. And I have every reason to believe that they were part of the problem when people wanted to pressurize Jesus to become political king of Israel. There's no reason to exclude them from that problem. And they were now separated from him because of their lack of understanding of who he was and what he'd come to do. So much of our distance from God is not that he has so much gone away, but that we have gone on our own path and he cannot follow because that's not his will. And we find ourselves in a dark, rough sea, needing him to deliver us because we have not invited him to take over in our lives. We've asked him simply to come and help, do what we were always intending to do. Darkness, rough seas, slow progress and fear, that's not a bad parallel for how we feel in life sometimes. And maybe the first thing we need to ask ourselves when we're going through those periods of fear is that actually am I walking where God wants me to walk or am I simply asking him to accompany me where I've already decided to go if you live under that narrative of fear that is a good place to start but be encouraged you are in good company everyone we read about in the Bible exhibited that tendency that's why they're there because they mirror to us what it's like to be human and walk with God. It's a rough ride sometimes. The second point is this, that human life follows a narrative of fear that we don't need to follow. God is for you. Now actually, if we did things differently here, I might as well have just stood up, said that, and sat down. God is for you. So when life feels like the Sea of Galilee, when it's calm and full of possibility and then suddenly turns dark and stormy and dangerous, God is for you. Our problem is, our instinct is towards survival. So we shore up our lives, don't we? At least I do. Am I the only one who does that? I doubt it. I bet you do. Financially, we shore it up. Socially, we seek approval from people and make sure we're liked. Physically, we bolt our houses and, and get as big a house as we can. We like big cars because we know if there's going to be a crash, the other person's going to come off worse than us. And we like to live in nice areas, rather than nasty areas. And as we go about life, we adopt that passive hostility, don't we? So we drive aggressively to make sure that person doesn't cut me up before I've done it to them. And I stand in queues, very, very obviously saying, no, I'm first, you need to go behind me. And there's a kind of an elbow thing that goes on and ATMs and in, in delis and all sorts of stuff. There is this kind of jungle warfare going on where we are shoring up our lives against the aggression of others. That's how it's played out. Those are the symptoms. But the one underlying fear that shines through this story is we fear God. We actually are a little bit afraid of him. 
We're afraid of what he wants to do for us and through us. And I mean fear God in the unhelpful sense, not in the fear God as in, you know, revere and worship him sense. What's the first emotion recorded in the Bible? Any ideas? You're learning, John. The clue was in the question and in the entire preamble. Um, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because they'd sinned. And we have this underlying narrative in our life that God is not on our side because we've sinned, we've been naughty, we've done things which are wrong. And therefore when God draws close to us, we have a tendency to withdraw because we can't believe that he wants good for us. He wants to refine us somehow or burn something out of us or or reform us. And that's going to hurt. Sin made us an enemy of God and we think made God an enemy of us. And that religious view of God is still instilled in people's heads. It was there in the disciples' heads. And when they saw the supernatural, they were deeply afraid. Deeply afraid. Because they thought it must be hostile towards them. Peter did the same. Do you remember the story about the miraculous catch of fish? Um, um, Briefly... Jesus says, go out into the deep water, cast your nets, and see what you will catch. And Peter says, well, we've been out all night, and what do you know about fishing? He doesn't actually say that, I just made that up, but it would, it's implicit. They, they go out into the deep water, they've been fishing all night, nothing. They, they almost sink the boat with the amount of fish they catch. They land it on the shore. Peter goes to Jesus and says, depart from me, go away. I'm a sinful man. I can't hack it. You are God, I am not. Go away. Jesus goes to a place on the the shores of the lake and um, delivers a man with many demons in him, well known to the local community, and restores him to that community. They come to him and they say, depart from us, go away. The power of God can make us feel ashamed and angry and defensive and afraid. Because we have a narrative in us that says God is not for us. He's against what we are. He doesn't like us because we do bad things. God is for you. He is for you. I'd go as far as to say he likes you. You know, when we talk about love, you can platonize that, can't you? Make it sound rather philosophical and, and, and talk about God's love for us. If I say God likes you, although it's a weaker word, it's actually a stronger word. It makes it feel more personal. God loves you so much that he likes you. You. And he is for you. He's for us in every situation. But what he asks of us is one simple thing. And simple is not always easy. The one thing he asks for us is trust. The gospel is a story of trust. Of relinquishing those things that you have put your trust in and 
myself that we've shored up our lives with and trusting God. You see, the disciples were in their area of expertise, weren't they? A good portion of them were fishermen. They were sailors. And what does Jesus do? He walks on the water. I don't even need a boat. I'd find that quite irritating, quite condescending, quite um, disempowering, really. There I am. I'm I'm only obeying his instruction to go to the other side of the lake anyway. I'm doing my best in ministry to do what he's asked me to do and he walks to me over the water I would I, I, never mind about annoyed I'd have been uh, afraid I'd have been quite cross but Jesus says put your trust in me I transcend your situation and all the things you do to make it secure put your trust in me Zacchaeus the tax collector had to leave his love of money behind The rich young man had to do the same and his knowledge of the law. The centurion had to acknowledge that his authority had to be set aside. The disciples had to leave their nets and their boats. Even the disabled man by the pool had to relinquish his familiarity and security in his own disablement and want to be healed. And so it goes on. When we say come to Jesus, what's heard is reform your life, stop sinning and maybe God will forgive you. Become a good person and be a Christian. Actually, being a Christian is far more exciting than that. It's trust God and see what he will do. And see what will drop away from your life that is not good. But come to him first. He's not calling you to behavioural change. He's calling you into a kingdom where you will behave differently because you will want to. And finally this, the final miracle in this story, which if you're anything like me, you probably missed. I'm going to read it again. If I can find it, that is the thing. Oh, here we go, right? Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Did you spot that? So the word immediately means, in English, immediately. So they welcomed Jesus into the boat and suddenly, as if in Star Trek, those of you old enough to remember that, they arrive at their destination. So I've gone on and on about God equipping you to be brave in difficult situations without necessarily changing them. And then at the end of the story, there is the miraculous. As if walking on water was not miraculous enough. Somehow the storm and the darkness are bypassed. God, yes, is the incarnate one who comes alongside us and shares our situation. But he's also the almighty one who transforms it. He is always accompanying and sometimes utterly changing. Jesus was raised on the third day. Sin was defeated and so was death. People are healed and lives are transformed. Life is victorious. Hope is real. It's not just a philosophical exhortation to have more courage. God does act. 
And I want to encourage you to continue to believe in that hope, that joy in life and the miraculous power of God to transform and change remain a reality in your life or become a reality in your life if it's not true today. Our energy and expectation that God will act must never be overwhelmed by the philosophical acceptance of suffering and a bit more inner strength to keep coping. Important though those things are. Jesus said to them, It is I, be not afraid. The Amplified Version gives an alternative rendering of that to this. I am... Stop being frightened. I am. Stop being frightened. The name of God is I am. When Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? I am sent you. Jesus' words to his terrified disciples were, I am, don't be afraid. And what does that mean? God is with you. Do not be afraid. Why don't you stand with me?